Let's pray again in thanksgiving and in petition. Much to be grateful for and much that we are in need of. Father, the days are full of turmoil and disruption. The God of this world has so profoundly blinded the eyes of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But what we are proclaiming in this place today by song and scripture reading through prayer and and now preaching is not ourselves. For this is not a religion of our own making. We're not proclaiming our own religious leaders as Islam does with Muhammad or Buddhism does with Buddha and his teachings or even Mormonism does with Joseph Smith. What we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord And we are merely servants for Jesus' sake. Our appeal to you, the great God who said once, let light shine out of darkness, and it did, is that you would stand over this world and as you have in generations gone by, command that gospel light, spiritual light, would shine in hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as it is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, that you would so command the light of the gospel to shine at this moment that there would be people brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from false teaching to a true understanding of the hope that is in Jesus. And while there is certainly darkness politically, Even at this hour, there is much that is obscured from our understanding or vision. There is nothing that is hidden from your sight. We certainly pray that our nation would know the blessing of your truth and the power of your justice. And with that Old Testament prophet Amos, we also pray, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We long to see this nation as one that exists under your authority and exists for your glory. There is certainly the darkness of disease. We hear daily of reports that are alarming as thousands more are infected and some even fatally so. And God, we beg for the mercy of your healing. There is not one person in this assembly Today, who knows all that lies behind and beneath this virus? We do not truly know its origin or even its trajectory or destiny. But while we may be fearful or confused or alarmed or even frustrated, great King, you are full of mercy and power to heal the nations. We ask that you would bring peace and quiet to anxious, fearful hearts, that you would bring grace and patience, even humility to those who are tempted to belittle those who walk cautiously and with care. Cause your church to unite in Christ and his glorious gospel that the message of the kingdom may not be obscured by political debates or personal squabbles. And above all, this is an hour of spiritual darkness and it seems to deepen day by day. Oh God, we beg for the power of your Holy Spirit to descend upon the church in this late hour of history that we may see a Pentecost in this present generation, 
There is no gospel power to be found in our own ingenuity or creativity. There is no saving work to be found in our good morals or conservative values. There's no rescuing or redeeming force to be found in our well-organized outreach or even the most carefully orchestrated relief efforts. It's all worthless and pointless and powerless apart from the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, you promised your disciples that they would, in fact, receive power after that the Holy Spirit had come upon them and the outpouring was unmistakable for thousands were convicted in their hearts of their sin against their Creator God. Thousands were converted as the Spirit compelled them to repent and to believe on Jesus Christ. Thousands were added to the church in those early days because the Spirit had, in fact, as promised, come. But, oh Lord, what of our generation? We are not less in need of the Spirit's presence and power than the 120 who gathered in that upper room after the ascension of Jesus. We are not less in need of the Spirit's manifest presence as we seek to declare the mighty works of God in this valley. And we are not in less need of boldness to preach, courage to proclaim, wisdom to speak, and love to engage. We need the Spirit. We are thankful for promises all throughout the Word. We lay hold of them by faith, and we pray them back to you and say, Lord God, just as you have declared, let it be so in our day, even in this day, that you would pour out your Spirit on all flesh, that our sons and daughters would prophesy, our young men see visions, our old men dream dreams, that in this day it would be said, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens. Oh, Lord God, let your I wills and I shalls come to pass even on this day. So come, Spirit of God. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, God our Father. We pray in the high and holy name of our Savior alone, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts 10. It'll be a few minutes before we get there. But nonetheless, you can go ahead and find the book of Acts as we continue our series on the conscience. I've grown up uh, camping and backpacking, and many of you have done that as well. And as we, as we enter message number three on calibrating the conscience, I was thinking in terms of, of the concept of calibrating and how there, there are things sometimes that we have to do to add or subtract. Uh, there are things that are necessary in a calibrating process, and and I thought of a scale, you know, if the scale in your bathroom is, is not calibrated correctly, you could either, either live under the illusion that you're, you know, not as heavy as you are, or be frustrated that you're not losing weight as fast as you want to be, and it's all because the scale is out of calibration. There are other, uh, there are other explana- or illustrations of this that I could say, and, I, and I, my mind actually turned to one of the things that I enjoy most in, in recreational opportunities, and that is backpacking. And my earliest memories include adventures on the Appalachian Trail and forays into the deep and humid forests of the East Coast. And one of the joys of moving to Utah, though, has been the new experiences in, high out, in the high altitude of the Rockies and the arid climate, even of the desert. Um, hiking and backpacking are one of the great joys of my heart, and particularly in a location like Utah, um, everyone should do it. 
but preparation is essential, and there are ways to go about preparing, and one of the ways would be illustrated here uh, before you on the screen. There are books that are written by experts that cover everything from where you should go to what you should pack, what equipment is good, and under certain circumstances, take these items, and under other circumstances, you would want to have these particular pieces of equipment with you. And there's equipment that needs to be purchased uh, and organized and ultimately loaded into your backpack. Uh, but there comes a point where you just actually have to go out and do it and experience both uh, the mountains themselves and uh, the friendships that are often included. There comes a point where you, you have to be out living out what you've been learning about in the comfort of your home. That preparation is essential because if you go out unprepared, you could, you could wind up like this guy that you already glimpsed just a moment ago. He's got way more in the pack than he needs to have. Nobody's backpack should ever look like, and I know some of you military veterans would say, well, I could tell you some stories. My commanding officer disagreed with what you just said, and I carried way more than I ever wanted to or maybe needed to. That's a little different scenario. That, that exception proves this rule. Likewise, if you go out with less equipment, uh, you'll also end up in trouble uh, because there are, there are needs that you will encounter and situations and scenarios that will require uh, things that if you don't have in your backpack, you're, you're wholly unprepared. So developing expertise in the outdoor adventure of backpacking calls for two things. The first, learning about it, and, and that's vital, and the second would be living it. And you know, God's truth is designed for us in the same way. He, he's not content to just simply see us learn some truth, but he wants that learning to turn into living and so even in the series on the conscience, I want you to think in terms of learning with a view of living it out. Um, developing the conscience is much like developing expertise in any field. And this is why we have to examine, and we're going to take time to, today, examine what's loaded or not loaded into our conscience and make adjustments as, ne as necessary to calibrate the conscience, if you will. Now let's go back to uh, that working definition that we're borrowing from uh, John MacArthur, and uh, the title to a really helpful book is included there at the bottom that he wrote a number of years ago, The Vanishing Conscience. But remember, we're thinking of the conscience in terms of a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standard we perceive. It's not its own authority. It's not equal to the Holy Spirit, and I hope to maybe interact on that question a little bit. My wife even said, you know, I, I know there is a difference, but how would you explain the difference between the Holy Spirit and your conscience? So, well, there is a difference, and we'll come to that in time, I trust. Uh, but think in terms of whatever, whatever highest standard your conscience perceives at any given moment is the standard to which it'll answer. And remember, your conscience doesn't do black, uh, it doesn't do grayscale. It thinks in terms of black and white, right and wrong, what is actually moral or immoral. But there are several things that actually inform our consciences, and sometimes they are so, uh, so 
heavily loaded into our souls that they have a controlling influence that God never intended. And I want to talk about uh, three of those today uh, here very briefly before we get to Acts 10. And, And those three are cultural traditions, religious traditions, and then a third category, which is kind of a subset of religious traditions, but it's kind of its own thing too, biblical misunderstanding. And we're going to get to some examples of things. Now, let's look first of all at cultural tradition. What do we mean by cultural tradition? We simply refer to those things that are learned cultural meanings or norms or ideals or values. Let me give you some examples. Littering. Uh, Littering, in in my conscience, is a really, really bad thing. And my conscience does not permit me to throw trash on the ground, ever. I don't toss it out the window. Uh, I I don't throw it out, you know, into my driveway. And I'm troubled, troubled, actually, by what I see lying on the side of the road everywhere I drive. I'm really grieved when I'm stopped at someone at at a light and I watch them toss a cigarette butt out of the window. I have a fantasy one day that I will get out of my car before the light turns green and I will grab that, I will knock on the window and grab that cigarette butt and throw it back into their car because they're sinning. That's my conscience. But you know what? There's nothing in the Bible that says littering is sin. So if I ever actually preach that from this pulpit, you should graciously but firmly remove me from the pulpit and say, Danny, let's talk. That's not God's law. Punctuality would be another example. Um, Things like privacy. Uh, There are all kinds of things. And think even in terms, some of you have traveled internationally and and know that hugs and handshakes and kisses uh, and personal space is very different culture to culture. Uh, In the West, I noticed again this morning that that nobody actually greeted one another with a holy kiss. And and you might say, well, COVID has put the kibosh on all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, but even before COVID hit, nobody was coming in here greeting one another with a holy kiss. But that's actually in the Bible, isn't it? Yes, but there's a cultural context or something like that. And imagine if we, some of you have traveled to Eastern cultures, and imagine if we invited a Russian pastor to come into our culture, and then he actually began to confront and chide us as a congregation that he was not seeing biblical uh, affection and appreciation expressed for one another because no men kissed one another on the cheek as they entered church this morning. We would smile and be polite, but think to ourselves, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And in a sense, he doesn't, because that's a cultural context greeting. But likewise, if we went over to his home country, we would see that all the time. And actually, some of us, even as men, might engage in that cultural tradition. So these are examples of things that that are powerful to a culture, even viewed as right or or wrong if they're neglected or they're practiced in a little different way, but at the end of the day, they're culture. Now, second category of religious tradition uh, that sometimes is a governing authority for us, and I want to give you a few examples. Other religions around the world, uh, this picture here uh, would would illustrate for us um, something of modesty and what is considered a very important social custom, and it's tied to... uh, Uh, a religious tradition. Uh, Seven years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Indonesia to visit with friends, mission partners from our former church in South Carolina. And one of the things they said to Kristen was, listen, when you get here, 
you need to, you need to pack clothing and be prepared to dress in a way that uh, the sleeves of your garment go below your elbows, and whether you're wearing pants or a dress or a skirt, it goes to your ankles. Because anything above that, uh, higher than that, is considered immodest. Now, what was curious to me is when we arrived in Indonesia and began to just you know, travel around and see the country, there were ladies whose garments went all the way to the wrist and to the ankles, but were so skin tight that in my Western mindset, I'm thinking, that's immodest, avert the eyes. So my wife, for instance, could have worn something that would have been considered to be modest by Western standards, but because you know, her arms were too exposed or too much of her leg uh, showed, they would have been offended. And there's religious uh, foundation laid in underneath this. In Muslim countries, I'm also told it's taboo to use the left hand as you interact with another person or to show the soles of your shoes to another person. In Buddhist culture, I'm told that pointing the feet directly at someone or touching another person's head is inappropriate and offensive. It's tied into some of those religious traditions. But then when we come to the Christian faith and even look in the Bible, we find that there are also some human traditions that some would tie directly to the scriptures or try to demonstrate from the Bible that these are, in fact, really, really important values or practices. And when you come to the scriptures, you'll find, uh, you'll find phrases like this, the tradition of the elders. Matthew 15, if you want to turn there real quickly, you can find this. It, it is uh, one of those stories included in the Gospels where the Pharisees and scribes are described as coming to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they say to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, the elders aren't just like you know, the generation preceding who we really valued and thought important, but these are those who have spiritual authority in the context of the Jewish religion. And over time, their teachings, their writings, their oral traditions have been passed on, and they held great spiritual weight and significance. But the truth is, these elders had misapplied the word of God. And if you continue reading down to Matthew 15, verse 19 and 20, Jesus corrects the tradition, the human religious tradition, if you will, and he says simply, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. There are examples of rabbinic tradition that were so tight, so cumbersome, that it was, it was nearly impossible to follow all of them. There's another, a second phrase that occurs in the scriptures when you come to Paul's writings. In Galatians 1.14, you will see him refer to the tradition of my fathers. The tradition of the fathers. In Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, and it's parallel to the tradition of the elders. Now think about this for a second, because he's talking about uh, the fact that um, before his conversion, he was a Pharisee, fully committed. And, and in one sense, if you think back to that image of, of the guy with the enormous backpack, that was Paul. His conscience was so overloaded with regulations and requirements in addition to the Ten Commandments. 
And he was all in on that. He learned it through his religious teachers, many of whom were well-intentioned. And we're going to see another example of this in just a moment, but the tradition of my father's is not the same as God's word. Number three, human tradition. Colossians 2. Go ahead and turn over there. I know I ask you to open your Bibles to Acts 10, but this will maybe help you see and remain engaged. In Colossians 2, verse 8, you begin to read Paul's word to the church. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not, so there's a contrast drawn, according to Christ. So here, human tradition is placed up against Christ himself and his teaching. And the things that Paul is describing here in this passage are not things that actually originate in the Bible as God's clear commands and instructions for all people at all times, but they have their origin in human tradition, what Paul calls the elemental spirits of the world. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul actually says in verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come. And it's easy for us, even with good intentions, to get caught up in the shadows of our faith rather than the realities. It's a little bit like how people come to worship the, the talismans or the, the tokens or icons of religion. And I've visited some of the great cathedrals or temples of the world where people are actually bowed before pictures of, the, uh, of even Christ himself or the cross or there's some relic there that they believe you know, goes back thousands of years to the time of Christ. And, and they're worshiping in the shadows. So Paul goes on, though, in verse 20 to speak of calibration. And this is where I want to show you that he's actually going to say to the Colossians, you know what, there's some things you need to subtract from your conscience and practice. And there are also some things you need to add to your conscience so that you practice the right stuff. Now look at these with me in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And here are some of those. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we all wish we knew exactly what those refer to, right? As, but this is all that Paul, tell, Paul tells us. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the tragedy of this false teaching and practice in Colossae is that it puts the emphasis on the external things and neglects what is really going on in the heart. So what do they need to subtract from their conscience? Well, some of them apparently feel as if there are particular practices that, that need to be added. Food and drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath. Every one of those things would have spiritual overtones. We'll get more into this in the weeks to come, but let me give you some like present day things. You, you have strong opinions where some people are like, Christmas has pagan origins. There's no follower of Jesus who should ever practice Christmas. That's a present day example of festivals that some would and some would not. But Paul is saying these are actually human precepts and teachings. These actually aren't God's word. Now, go to chapter 3. 
because the, this is the pitiful irony that while there are some who are fully devoting themselves to all kinds of special diets with a spiritual view and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It seems by what Paul is writing that they're not even doing some of the stuff that is clear in the Word of God. Their conscience hasn't been calibrated by His truth. It's probably being calibrated by a culture that was very loose and very immoral, that justified everything from, you know, having girlfriends on the side. Sure, you got your wife, but, you know, you've got a few girls on the side, and, you know, they're there for your good times. Well, that was commonly accepted in Rome, Greek culture. Not for the people of God, because God would say, no, your conscience is under my law. Verse 12, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It, it seems as if Paul is, is saying, you know, you're worried about all the spiritual practice, but you're neglecting the really important things, like kindness, humility, meekness. You see, God wants your conscience to operate exclusively under his authority. And to calibrate it means that you've got to subtract the stuff that he never intended to be loaded in your backpack. And at the same time, you've got to put the right stuff in there. Because this journey is long and it's significant and there's so much good and joy for you to experience on the journey of life. And we're also about to see that there's an important mission that you're on. So it's not just about having the, the right size backpack with all the right stuff in it. No, this is where we get to that third category of biblical misunderstanding. Now go back to Acts 10, finally. I use that heading of biblical misunderstanding because what you're going to see here in this particular portion is a, a conversation that God has with Peter, who we know, I mean, he's an apostle, all right? So he's not an immature believer, uh, he's not a poorly taught believer. He's actually a believer that we, we all should emulate. But this is a really wonderful moment where we see God at work in this man's conscience. And he's calibrating it from biblical misunderstanding and practice to a right understanding and a really significant practice. So in Acts 10, verse 13, the Lord comes to Peter uh, and remember, this, he's given him this vision. The sheet comes down with all kinds of, of living creatures in it. And some of what would probably be in there, to put it in modern terms, is like the Lord lowered the sheet, and it's got all kinds of seafood, and for the first time you're seeing ham and bacon appear, and you're looking at this saying, wow. And as the Lord does this, he speaks to Peter and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now let's pause right there. There are several things that we can determine about Peter based on what we've known of him in the past and even what he's stating here. And, and I want to be careful that we're not too judgmental, but he uses that little word unclean. Well, this, this is a reminder to us that there's great spiritual significance in avoiding these particular foods because Peter was born into what kind of ethnic family? He's a Jew. He didn't choose that. God chose it. Um, he's born into, in, into Jewishness, and he's fully committed to it. So that means from the time he's been a little guy, he's never had bacon with his eggs. He's never had the, the joy uh, of a crab cake or a lobster tail, you know, dunked in that, in that butter. 
And it's not just that he hasn't had access to those foods, but they're actually, under Old Testament law, they've been put out of bounds for him. We know that Peter is a Jewish apostle who takes obedience to the word very seriously, and we would never want to criticize him for that. There's a second thing that we know. He desires to be holy because he uses that word unclean, and it's a word that has reference to spiritual defilement. So this isn't about, you know, giving some kind of vegetable wash in the sink to make sure there's no E. coli on it or making sure that, you know, you've cooked your meat long enough where it's not contaminated. No, there's a spiritual cleanness that he's concerned about, and, and that's a good thing. There's a third observation. He's an apostle who is careful to maintain what he believes are upright associations. Now, you've got to go all the way down to verse 28 to see that, and we'll come there in just a moment. But, but tied into this, this food law and the practices from the Old Testament that, that Peter still thinks are in force, there was a, a desire to, to steer clear of unholy people. So clearly Peter is committed to submitting his heart to the word as he understands it, but his understanding is underdeveloped at this point. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 15. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, here's a question for you. When did God make these foods clean? Well, you know, the Gospels actually records one of those conversations back in Mark 7, among other places. In verse 18, Jesus is teaching a powerful lesson. And again, he's trying to get at the heart of some of those, those Pharisaical practices that were concerned about hand washing, but were neglecting the heart. Physical cleanness and spiritual cleanness are not equal. And Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And then, in verse 19, he says, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And now Mark adds a little parenthetical explanation. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Now, what heartens me is that even though I, I, there's every reason to believe Peter was standing right there hearing that taught, he's human as we are, doesn't have perfect knowledge, even as an apostle, you know, didn't get some like divine hard drive, uh, you know, reprogrammed into his soul. He missed it. And, and even though Jesus said it, and that could have been the moment where Jesus, or, or where Peter began to say, you know what, time to have bacon with my eggs, time to try the crab cakes. He would have been free at that moment to do all of those things. He had missed it and was still practicing something that in his conscience honored God. So his heart is in the right place, but his conscience needs to be calibrated. Peter actually needs to subtract something from his conscience. And, and if you can picture this, it's as if God in this conversation is coming to, to Peter saying, time to open up the pack. I'm going to remove some things, Peter. And initially, Peter's like, no, no, that's always been in my backpack. I've never, I've never taken one hiking trip out into the mountains or the, or the woods without that. And, and God is saying, Peter, let, let me take it out. Here's a question. Why doesn't God give Peter a pass on this thing? Why, why doesn't God simply say, you know what, it's okay. It's actually what your parents were commanded to do and you know, there's a transition underway, and, and we'll get you there at some point. We'll go back to Acts 10. 
there's a really significant reason why God doesn't give them a pass. And here's point number two. There's a gospel mission. And for the sake of gospel effectiveness, this has to be subtracted from Peter's conscience. Look at verse 19. Well, let's, let's back up to verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Isn't that funny? How much clearer could God make, make this? Rise, kill, eat. But, but here's Peter, and it just shows you the power of a conscience. It, remember, the conscience wants to answer to the highest authority it perceives. And all his life, it, it's answered to those Old Testament food laws. But now, there's something else underway. And so here he is, perplexed. We read on, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Well, now we're getting to it. It's not even about the food laws and Peter's liberty to eat foods he never would have imagined eating before, but it actually has to do with gospel mission to the Gentiles. But he's a Jew. And historically, and even Old Testament speaking, he's not supposed to interact with these guys. Not in close fellowship, but something else is happening, isn't it? And what God is revealing to Peter is that if he doesn't allow God to calibrate his conscience and subtract some things from it, he'll continue to think too much like a Jewish man, live out his life like a Jewish man, and miss out on the gospel work of this great kingdom of Christ. And when he sees the three men, he suddenly realizes that his conscience has to be calibrated for the sake of the gospel mission in the world. Look at verse 28, uh, because this is where he just says straight up as he speaks to these men, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is powerful, beloved. Because all of us are prone, in our case, it would be to think more like American citizens than kingdom citizens. All of us are prone to wave the red, white, and blue. Oh, America's the greatest nation on the face of the planet, and it is. If America doesn't do what's right in this critical election period, we'll never recover, probably. And if we don't go to Washington and protest or go to the Capitol building in our own state and protest, can you lay down that flag for a minute and think like a citizen of heaven? Because there's actually a greater, more eternal work that God has called us to engage in. Now, engaging at that level will actually make us good citizens. And, and please underst understand me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that elections don't matter or that upholding the Constitution or living by the laws of this land are unimportant. I'm just saying they're secondary to the great mission. And I can assure you, if we as followers of Jesus neglect the great mission, even our effort to engage in the secondary mission will fail totally. Because you know what really needs to happen in this nation? Is that people come to see that the God who created them is in fact angry with their sin. That they are destined for his condemnation and wrath and judgment if they don't turn and repent. Souls are at stake. So God is saying, let me calibrate your conscience. Because there's a guy named Cornelius and his friends who need to hear 
the good news that the Christ you walked with for three years as one of his 12 disciples has died for their sins, has risen miraculously from the grave, has ascended on high, and has opened forgiveness and salvation and eternal life for them. Peter, will you tell them? And Peter says, I should not call any person common or unclean. I want to illustrate it through the life of Hudson Taylor. Some of you would know of him. Others of you say, Hudson who? Oh, if you don't know the story of Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries of history, you, you should read his biography at some point in your life. And there, there are multiple editions uh, from some of the smallest that summarize it to really big, thick, fat ones that tell you probably more than you'd ever want to know. But, but he was a British Protestant who gave his life to China. He spent 51 years in that foreign nation, and just listen to a couple of things that God accomplished through him. The missionary society that he began was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries to that country who began 125 schools and directly resulted in his own generation the conversion of 18,000 to Christianity. He established more than 300 stations of work with more than 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces, and there are many who attribute the explosion of Christianity in China in the last century to the work that Hudson Taylor did a century before that. Nobody really knows how many believers are in China at this point, but conservative estimates are that there are 100 million, probably more. In his early days, that's what he looked like. Typical Brit, wearing the clothes of uh, an ordinary British man, haircut, facially, you know, groomed, and I mean, nothing about him that, that would say anything other than, I'm a British citizen. But over time, as he immersed himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ and began to recognize the, the significant opportunity that was before him and the need, he, he realized that he could easily and happily give up all of those things common to a Brit for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the people he was trying to reach. And so you see that portrait uh, on the right of the screen. That's Hudson Taylor in his later life. And I know this is foreign to us, but that's what the typical Chinaman looked like in his day. And he came under the power of God's truth where his conscience was liberated to leave not just that old uh, British standards of uh, of life and dress and, and, and conduct and such, but submitting himself to the Lord, he actually received a great deal of criticism. It doesn't really show in that first picture, but apparently his hair was of such a light color that when he first arrived in China, he stood out you know, in ways that he didn't want to, so he dyed his hair black, and then he grew it long and, and took care of it the way that, that was common in China. And so here is a man uh, who, as he founded the China Inland Mission, wasn't seeking to export British Christianity into this foreign nation, but was seeking to become what God designed in his goodness for that people to look like and be like. He learned not just uh, you know, one form, one dialect of, of Chinese, but apparently could speak in multiple dialects, even helped to translate the scriptures into one uh, now very obscure dialect, but he dressed as they did, and, and he really just became a part of that culture. 
passages like Acts 10 and stories like Hudson Taylor's cause me to think, what practice or practices of mine, which while well-intentioned, first are a misunderstanding and misapplication of God's word to my present life and context, but perhaps even more importantly, actually prevent my own gospel effectiveness. I could ask a question like this, who's the Cornelius that God would send to your door or mine today if we would turn loose of some of those lifelong cultural, even religious traditions that God never put in the backpack? You see, God's word must be the exclusive governing standard for us. MacArthur writes, to the wise, or the wise Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges right because it is responding to God's word and not some other perceived authority. A regular diet of scripture will strengthen a weak conscience or restrain an overactive one. That's what God was actually doing with Peter. He's got an overactive conscience at that point, saying, I can't eat those foods, and I can't hang out with those people. And God says, "Mm, calibration. Conversely, error, human wisdom, wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. So that's why we don't look to culture to calibrate the conscience. We don't even look to well-intentioned religious tradition to calibrate the conscience, we ultimately look to the word of God. Last week we saw the corrupted conscience needs to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. The cup we're about to receive is a reminder that there is cleansing from all unrighteousness. But you know, the misinformed conscience needs to be calibrated by the authority of Christ. The weak conscience needs to be trained and strengthened by the word of Christ. And the overactive conscience needs to be decluttered by the word of Christ. So where does that leave us? You say, now what? Two things. I come full circle again. First of all, calibrate your conscience by learning the word of God. Don't just assume that you got it. Like, you know, some of you had godly parents and they taught you the word of God and even taught you some applications and and as much as is possible you should hold on to those things as long as they're consistent with the word of God but but it's time for you to take the word of God into your own soul and and read it and study it and submit your conscience to it you can't just read this for information's sake it's like reading backpacking uh, books and and feeling somehow you've become an expert in backpacking just because you've read enough of it A second part of of learning the word of God would not only be submitting your conscience to it, but even evaluating your convictions according to the word of God. It's good to ask questions like this. I believe, at this moment, I believe it is right to, and then may fill in the blank with some sort of practice, because, and then see if you actually come up with a Bible reason for it. Or maybe the converse, I believe it is wrong to do X, Y, or Z because, but is it because the word says it or just because, well, that's kind of how I feel? Evaluating which convictions might actually be shaped more by the culture than by God's word. 
We see that in the church right now with this whole thing about different views on marriage emerging or sexuality. The culture would tell you, you can, you can not only pick your gender, you can pick your partner or partners. You, you can pick what kind of marriage you have or not be married. And, and, and the culture would sanction whatever you practice, but God's word doesn't permit it. And with your Bible open and your heart bowed before the Lord, ask him to calibrate your conscience so that you may be strong as he wants you to be strong, that your conscience may be clear as he wants it to be clear in your service to him. And then finally, that brings us to just a second point. Calibrate your conscience by living according to the word of God. So that's where you you do this. You pour over the manual. What should my life look like? How should I think? How should I live? How should I speak? How should I conduct all of life? And and then you say, thank you, Lord. And and then you strap on the pack, as it were, and you you go on the hike. You got to go live it. And, you know, sometimes even in in backpacking, going to that analogy, you you get out there and you realize that some of the stuff that you thought was going to go a particular way doesn't, and so you're making adjustments in your load. And next time out, you add a few more things in because you're like, man, I got out there and I, I just didn't have what I needed. And, and that's where you maybe go back and use the backpacking illustration. You go back to one of the books and you're like, there it was. It was on page 17. I just missed that. But your experience puts you in a position of saying something's not right. And you know, often life puts us in those positions where you're like, something's not right. And then you go back to the word and you're like, there it is. Better stick that in. Or sometimes you're out there going, I thought, God wanted me to, but I'm realizing now he didn't, and you pull something out. Now, the next few weeks, we're going to dig in really deep on how we exercise our consciences for the glory of God in this big gospel mission we're a part of, but we're also going to dig into how do, we, how do we navigate those difficult waters of differences of opinion within the body of Christ, because we got some strong ones, don't we? Yes, we do. And if you can only come up with three or four right now, I've got a list that I think is close to 70 items right now. I may actually read through that entire list at some point. There are hundreds of things that Christians squabble over, and and God actually puts all of it in perspective and shows us this beautiful strategy for navigating that, which ultimately feeds us back into that healthy, strong life together as a body of believers that makes us effective in gospel mission. He doesn't just want you to personally be effective in gospel mission. He wants our church to be effective in it as well. So let's submit our consciences to God and say, Lord, calibrate it according to your word and strengthen me to practice it as you desire. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are for your word and all of us All of us need calibration. There's great strength and maturity here in many ways, many categories, and yet at the same time, we are all weak and untrained. Our understanding of your word is not perfect, and consequently, even our best efforts to apply the word accurately come short of what you intend. So we ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would instruct and teach us that we may live as you desire. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.